Hello, and welcome to GradCast, the official podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm Elizabeth Moeller. And I'm Emily Hutchinson. And we're joined today by Bridget Farrell. Hello, Bridget. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on today. Hi, thank you both for having me today. I appreciate it. You're most welcome, Bridget. We're really excited, wondering to kick us off if you can tell us a little bit about your academic background, your your work, and maybe a little bit about what brought you to Western. Okay, sure. Um, so I've uh, I finished my MA two years ago, uh, MA 2020 pandemic class um, at Western, and then I decided to continue my PhD here. So I'm in the second year of my PhD right now, doing comps, which is a uh, terrifying process a little bit, but I mean, it's exams, so we signed up for this. <laughs> my background, I in my undergrad, I uh, I'd started out in science, but I didn't really, uh, it didn't mesh very well with me, and so I moved into history, and I found that I was very interested in the history of science and medicine, which has kind of led me to my MA topic and my PhD topics, which are both uh, medically driven. So my master's thesis um, was centered on shell shock in Canadian soldiers in the First World War and exploring um, soldiers who were discharged for being medically unfit. And my PhD is now focusing on eugenics and eugenics in French colonial policies. I'm intending to look at Algeria, uh, so French colonial policies in organizing Algeria um, and how those uh, can be connected to eugenic ideologies and um, biopolitical control. So I want to ask you about shell shock. So I know this is something that a lot of people have heard of that soldiers were suffering from. Could you give us an outline of what exactly shells, shells, <laughs> the about what shell shock really is? Um, sure. So that is a, that's a, a big question that a lot of historians uh, grapple with. You hear sometimes that uh, PTSD is just a modern day understanding of shell shock or um, battle fatigue, as it was called in World War II. Or prior to World War I, it was, I think, in uh, like the American Civil War, it was called the soldier's heart. But so all of these conditions are very different. Um, they're all related to... Um, mental difficulties in experiencing war, right? But whereas PTSD is post-trauma, right? Um, and it is a specific category of um, experiences uh, and how it presents itself is understood very clearly. What shell shock was, was a lot of different physical and mental reactions to war that are categorized as numerous different things nowadays. Um, but back then it was kind of any adverse reaction that you had to being um, at, on, at, at, sorry, um, on the war front. So it could be a nervous reaction. So you get the shakes, right? That a lot of people think of when you say shell shock or some people couldn't speak anymore, aphonia. Some people went deaf, blind. Um, others, uh, others, uh, sorry, I'm trying to think. So some people presented with uh, what some consider like lunacy, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different things that happened to soldiers that presented in very different ways that shifted even over the course of the war, what people understood to be shell shock. 
I'm sorry. So um, I've given you a non-answer. <laughs> no, that is an incredibly detailed description. I want to circle back because you use a word that maybe some of us Foucauldian scholars would know, but perhaps <laughs> not everyone in the audience. So biopolitics. Do you oh, want to yes. just kind of walk us through what biopolitics are? Sure. Thank you. Um, sometimes I do just like drop words, you know, you get used to so hearing them all the time. Of course. But, uh, so biopolitics, from what I understand and how I'm using it, is how science and medicine are um, not appropriated into politics, but how um, they are politically used to help organize society, right? So public health would be an ex like uh, an extension of biopolitics, right? So it is uh, how the state and the body kind of interact. That very, very nice, concise definition. And certainly, I'm sure in COVID, we've seen a lot of kind of initiatives around biopolitics uh, to make sure that we're maintaining and, and you know, adhering to public health guidelines. And Amelie, I'll toss it back over to you. I don't want to steal the wheel. Yeah, no problem. I definitely have a question about how some of the symptoms of shell shock, it seemed to be more mental, mental health things and others were more physical. So I wanted to ask how those two blend together and if they were seen as kind of equally worthy of treatment or, or what's going on with, with those two components of shell shock. Sure. Um, so part of my analysis in my MA was I did a case study of 50 Canadian soldiers. So um, we're lucky that uh, First World War service records have been digitized on Library and Archives Canada. Thank you very much. Um, but so I was able to go through and isolate those files and um, shell shock was attributed to a lot of different cases where you might not, you might not think it should be. Um, and there were cases that were considered to be more severe or more worthy of treatment than others. There were also uh, concerns about people faking this illness to get off of the front. Um, so that actually led to people uh, diagnosing fewer soldiers with it later in the war because they didn't want to give people an out, I suppose. Um, also, we see a lot of classism with the diagnosis of shell shock. So a lot of uh, officers, for instance, were more, um, I don't wanna say it was easier for them to be diagnosed with it, but um, it was, they were, less, they were less likely to be sent, sent back to the front after a diagnosis of shell shock. Certainly the physical reactions were more, um, were taken more seriously by physicians, people who were shaking, right? People who were blind because uh, they cannot physically perform, right? Mm -hmm. So they had to be taken back to be treated. Um, however, uh, the, those who were more mentally affected and who um, perhaps like, couldn't talk or they couldn't really process or follow orders, they were problematic, not just in that they uh, couldn't perform in the same way as well, but um, they were also a detriment to what the army was really concerned with, what they call morale, right? So um, if you see all these soldiers who are kind of off, right, who are questioning um, the purpose of being there, who are terrified, right, it really affects morale. Um, and so they also had their own... Uh, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know how to say importance, but they were also, it was also significant to identify them and potentially remove them from the front as well. So it really depended on how they presented or how long and um, yeah, just what the effect of their <laughs> affection or affectation rather might, uh, might result in, I guess. It was very case by case. 
Yeah, and when soldiers were removed, what would typically happen to them in, in your research? Kind of what came out there? Okay, um, so yeah, there were, so you could be taken back to a hospital. You could be taken back to a, um, oh gosh, a convalescent tent. So those tended to be closer to the front, but it was where you could get some basic um, medical treatments. So some people just needed to be off the front for a bit. They needed a break. Others had to be hospitalized. Specific hospitals were actually created to deal with um, shell shock because so many soldiers were coming back with it. Um, and there were hospitals available for higher class citizens that were smaller, that were, you know, in the British countryside. Um, and so some, sold, and, but most soldiers, you know, they went back to a facility for maybe a few months, maybe not even, and then sent back to the front typically, unless their uh, diagnosis was accompanied with like a gunshot wound or something that was um, debilitating and they couldn't um, fight anymore. Yeah. Do you think there was anything that predisposed certain soldiers, like maybe airplane or the Navy or, or something like that? Did you see any differences in, in who was getting the most diagnoses? Oh, I didn't actually uh, look at uh, Air Force versus Navy versus Army. I was just looking at the Canadian Expeditionary Forces specifically. So I was looking okay. at the Army, um, but that would be really interesting. Uh, That'd be something else to investigate too, right? I was going to be looking at nurses and physicians because I found this, uh, I found this case study of uh, a nurse who had been, um, so she had been diagnosed with what was called neurasthenia, which is like kind of like shell shock, a little bit different. Where the line is actually drawn is up to the physician really. So she had been working like nights for two months and was diagnosed with like extreme fatigue and like neurasthenia. And, um, and, I, and so that got me wondering about um, the medical uh, personnel, right? Who are actually treating these soldiers. How did they deal with this? Like what happened to them? Did their uh, diagnoses look different? And then what's interesting about them is you can actually have a gendered analysis as well, right? How were women treated differently than men at this time with regards to mental affectations, right? Um, that's, that was something I haven't dived into yet, but something also interesting I'd like to look into. So what, what got you interested in this work? I know you said you started off in science. That wasn't maybe what you expected or not a fit. Mm -hmm. And then you found your way to history. And it sounds like that's been a place that you're really passionate about staying in. Um, but what, what kind of inspired you to, to look at this shell shock? Um, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I could probably uh, lay the blame at uh, Dr. Jonathan Vance's feet. Um, he's a uh, history professor. Um, he's been on campus for a while. He's a fantastic First World War historian. He does a lot with um, memory and social memory and why things are remembered and how um, and what that tells us about society but that tells us about national narratives. And I remember taking his fourth year First World War class and um, I just uh, found it fascinating. And I think I found Shellshock in his fourth year um, undergrad class actually. But yeah, Dr. Vance, <laughs> he's great. <laughs> Shout out to Dr. Vance, excellent. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's really neat. I want to talk a bit about your research methods or how you sure. found all these people. So you mentioned quickly that the medical records from World War One were all digitized. So how did you go about finding your sample size and, and choosing these people to be in the group? And then what were you looking for in their records? Great question. Um, so uh, they're actually so entire service files have been digitized, not just medical. So you get to actually see uh, how old they were when they enlisted, where they were when they enlisted, who their um, like next of kin was, what their jobs were before they enlisted. So a lot of a lot of farmers in the First World War, um, some journalists, some students, you know, some uh, bankers. Um, but so it's all been digitized on Library and Archives Canada, which is fantastic. They haven't gotten there yet with the Second World War, but you can apply to have a file digitized. So, um, however, they have, I think like 660 plus thousand service files of soldiers wow. and not all of them were discharged, mm -hmm. right? For being medically unfit. And they're not searchable files either. It's just uploaded images. Oh. So you, yeah. So at first <laughs> I tried a random method. I, you know, would punch in um, randomized numbers of service files and, uh, that did not get me very far. Um, so I actually found um, discharge lists in uh, the newspaper. So the newspaper would actually publish who was discharged at a period of time. And they would also publish who was discharged for being medically unfit and why. So they would put just your name in the paper and then they would say, oh, they were discharged for being um, medically unfit shell shock. They might actually even include that just, you know, in the, you know, uh, Ottawa paper, Saskatchewan paper for everybody to see. So not very concerned with privacy at all. No, privacy has come a long way. Yes. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so I was able to find uh, soldiers' names through there, uh, which is fantastic. I was very lucky that way. I know you said it's sort of in the works and you're, you're thinking about what you want to do, but You've mm -hmm. told us a little bit earlier that you're starting your PhD, and in fact, you're in your second year. So can you tell yes. us a little bit about that and where you're at so far? Sure. Thank you. Um, yes. Yeah, so I'm in second year of my PhD. I'm looking instead. So I've moved away from Canada. I'm, I want to look at France and uh, the French colonial empire. I find it very interesting. Um, and I want to look at I want to look at it in the context of eugenics ideology and thinking about how eugenics ideology factored into French colonial organization. Um, so I'm looking specifically at Algeria uh, right now. One of the unique things about Algeria is they became kind of a province of France, right? Something that colonies rarely, um, I don't want to say achieved, that's the wrong word, but something that rarely happened to colonies is that they were actually subsumed into um, the metropole into that um, original imperial state, right? Um, so that gave uh, Algerians a very interesting position uh, historically. Um, that So looking into their citizenship laws and marriage laws, I find really interesting. Um, and yeah, rooting that in uh, eugenics, uh, just to further this whole idea that I have about eugenics being a global history and not something that's just a British, American, and German experience. 
So can you tell us, just uh, just simplify it for us, what is sure. eugenics? <laughs> Again, no problem. From there. <laughs> Great question. So um, the definition of eugenics changes over time, and it has a lot. Um, but so kind of what we roughly agree on or understand it as is this um, understanding that uh, so people have genes, right, or traits that are passed on. Early, we didn't really understand the idea of a gene. So there was this idea that traits were passed on. Um, and eugenics is the idea that you can control uh, what kind of traits are passed on to promote a specific kind of uh, group of humans, right? So earlier uh, scientists understood this as promoting a specific kind of human race, right? So when race was, bio, um, was rooted in biology, there was this idea that you could um, achieve a, a perfect human race through uh, intervention. We've certainly seen, you know, through history, lots of instances of that. Uh, I can mm -hmm. imagine certainly in, in the disability community, in the Indigenous community, and then, of course, certainly the more most common, I'm sure, that brings to mind for folks uh, in, in Nazi Germany. So a really heavy, heavy topic. Um, yes. And how did, so, you know, you mentioned that your, your MS, your master's was around shell shock. So how did you mm -hmm. sort of come into this um, study of eugenics specifically in, in France? Okay. Um, so I took a class uh, called French Canada in my master's with Professor uh, Jeffrey Vacante. Um, and so we actually looked at French Canada and I had listened to a talk from uh, Dr. Erica Dick who is a professor over at Saskatchewan, and she does a lot with um, eugenics history. Um, and we read uh, her book in my Canadian history class on eugenics in Canada. And I was like, oh, what about eugenics in French Canada? There's kind of two books on eugenics in Canada. One is by Angus McLaren and one is by Erica Dick. And both kind of have this idea that eugenics was really practiced in um, Alberta and BC because that's where it was legalized. So Canada had like legalized eugenics practices until 1973. Oh so it, yeah. practices are still happening nowadays, right? So this is something that is a very big part of Canadian medical history and Canadian Indigenous history. Um, but so I wanted to look at French Canada to see how this was happening there, right? Just because something is illegalized doesn't mean there's not a conversation happening. Doesn't mean it's not a part of prominent ideologies or that people aren't being shaped in certain ways or that it hasn't found its way into other thinking. And so. Uh, I was looking at French Canada and found that a lot of discussions were happening there, but because of how Catholic French Canada has been historically, um, a lot of eugenics ideology and later uh, abortion ideologies like wouldn't be taken in because it was seen as interfering with, um, with um, having children, right? So eugenics was um, anti-Catholic essentially. And so, so there were discussions because there's a lot of English professors at French Canadian universities who are kind of bringing these ideas there, um, but it kind of met with quite a bit of rejection politically and socially. Um, 
And so that French Canadian investigation just kind of got a little bigger. And I was like, well, what about France? And that's kind of, that was, I think, some stepping stones that brought me to France. <laughs> Sorry, that was a little bit. No, of that. that that's a great <laughs> answer. And, you know, you've, you really said something that resonated with me a few moments ago. You know, there's, there's kind of what we typically think of as eugenics. And then there's sort of these more um, passive, but still quite harmful processes of eugenic behavior. So whether it's forced sterilization or, um, you know, incarceration or institutionalization for the purposes of sort of segregating people from the population. And I'm just wondering, has your research touched on that at all? Uh, Yes, actually. So, um, so there are sort of two, I guess, streams of eugenics practices. One is like positive or it's considered positive, other is negative. Um, So positive eugenics is this idea, um, so it's this focus on those people who are carriers of desirable traits, and so it's helping them have more children essentially, right? So it's public health measures, it is um, uh, what the French call uh, culture, so it's about like um, taking care of women who are pregnant, right, who are pregnant with desirable progeny. For children. Um, and then there's negative eugenics, which as you mentioned, are steriliz- is sterilization, is isolation, is um, in the extreme case of the Holocaust, right, mass extermination. Um, so um, in, in my um, research so far, what I've noticed is that um, outside of the excessive, you know, and incredible violence that was used by the French state in Algeria against Algerians, um, as a means of oppression, right? The colonial state is inherently oppressive. Um, How they were uh, introducing eugenics laws socially was through marriage laws um, and recognition through citizenship. Um, So less less, um, negative eugenics and more, I think, positive, more about, again, that like biopolitical term, more about controlling people and who they were actually married to um, supporting or not supporting intermarriage. Um, initially, intermarriage in colonial spaces is not usually contested. It's about um, trust, it's about gaining control. But um, as intermarriage produces racially mixed children, it becomes a problem for the French state because what is Frenchness, right? Frenchness historically has been whiteness. So racially mixed children presents a problem there. And so interracial mixing. Um, becomes less and less acceptable via the French state. Um, I'm so sorry, I've gone off on a tangent. No, that's <laughs> quite all right. <laughs> tangents are what Gradcast is all about. Absolutely, Beautiful. we love tangents. Tangents are the best. Happy to be here. <laughs> I just wondered, do you know, with our last few minutes, is there any kind of closing thoughts you want to share? Anything um, next steps with your research? Things you're excited about? You want to share with us? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess maybe some closing thoughts is something that I've kind of come over the past few months is just how, uh, how political science inherently is. And I think that that's a really important message, right? There's not this idea that science is pure, or that um, it can be removed from society that scientists aren't biased, that they aren't real people doing investigations that are funded, you know, that are um, influenced by all of the ideas that you're brought up with, right? I think that that is something that we have to grapple with and understand, right? That uh, science is inherently political and that's important. Um, 
but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know no, how else. <laughs> absolutely. Science isn't important and it's political. And that's, that's a great, a great closing thought. Thank you so much, Bridget. You have been listening to GradCast the podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Elizabeth Muller, and I'm joined today by Amelie Hutchinson, and our guest was Bridget Farrell. If you want to listen to more of our episodes, you can do so by going to gradcast.ca, or you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can check us out on YouTube. Feel free to get in touch with us by email, or you can listen to us on the radio. Thank you so much, and have a great night.